nobody wants to be dealing with the things that are really scary. And Middle Eastern politics are terrifying. I do think there is room, even within our bubble, to get wilder, get more interesting, because there's no reason to do theater if we're not going to be scaring ourselves. Hi, I'm Eric Ostro, host of Live at the Lortel. For season two, while theaters are still closed due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we are turning our focus to discuss the reckoning the theater community is facing for its history of systemic racism. We also wanted to give theater artists a platform to share their thoughts on the political and social changes in our country and how they envision the future of the American theater. I will be sharing my hosting duties with members of the BIPOC community to provide our audience with different perspectives and new ideas. It is our sincere hope these conversations will help us all learn from one another and begin the healing process. Joy D. Michelle and I met in 1992 at Mason Grove School of the Arts at Rutgers University. We immediately bonded over our love of the theater, Chinese food, and Maya Angelou. I've watched Joy grow as an artist, entrepreneur, and loving wife, but witnessing her raise her amazingly independent and beautiful daughter has been the biggest gift as a friend. I am so happy she can join me on this exploration. Welcome to Live with the Lortel. My name is Eric Ostro. I'm very happy to welcome all of you to our podcast, which is now a webinar so people can participate. First, I'd really love to introduce to you my co-host, Joy is pitch hitting for some of our co-hosts who couldn't make it today, but I'm so pleased to welcome my very, very dear friend for 26 years. We got our master's together. She's really my sister in my heart. So welcome, Joy D. Michelle Moore. Welcome, Joy. Thanks, Eric. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to have you. You were the first person I called, first person I thought of. So we speak the same language. So I'm so happy you're here and I'm so happy to share this experience with you. Without further ado, let's welcome our magnificent guest, Betty Shamia. Welcome, Betty. Hello. Thank Hello. you for having me. Yes. Thanks for being here. So early too. I know you're out in California. Just very happy to be connected to you all during this time. Thank yeah. you for having me. Well, speaking of this time, let's talk about it. I mean, we can't really have a conversation without talking about what the hell is going on in our country for the past, you know, seven months. You want to tell me about where you are and what you've been doing and how the pandemic and what's happening in the world has affected you? You know, I've been very affected by the We See You White American Theater kind of movement. And it's something I'm trying to kind of disseminate an idea that we as human beings are tribal in nature. And we're not going to change our nature. But maybe what we can do is change how we choose what tribes we belong to. I have worked probably at this point more extensively outside of America than in American theater. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Some of them aesthetic, some of them political. One thing that I know is it's taught me that I have more in common with a theater artist from almost any other community than a person in America, or in my case, from the Arab world, because I kind of feel like I straddle those two worlds. I have more in common with a theater artist than somebody who's, quote unquote, from my culture. What I'm trying to encourage people in this time of reckoning is to see the theater community as a family. And like every family, we have to get better. We have to grow together. We have to make mistakes. So I really cannot wait for the theaters to open up and for us to kind of 
deal with this reckoning like a family would, like a tribe would. I think it's very important to, as we have evolved to be kind of tribal people who need other people and need to feel connected, that we choose who we're connected to based on things that we want in our lives rather than things that we inherited. I really think that part of the pain of what's going on in the theatrical community is the pain of feeling like you're rejected from your own family, which is something that I encountered a lot, kind of at my midpoint in my career, which I was routinely working. Most of my world premieres have happened outside of America. And it was really the pain of not feeling like you're part of the family or you're the, you know, ugly stepchild or whatever. And I really would love for this to be a wonderful time in which we get back to why we created theater, which is we're a bunch of weirdos. We believe that like you can stare at things and and they can do things physiologically to your body that make you believe that they're true and you can have reactions. And we dedicate our lives to this weird art form that has no evolutionary function that we can tell. And that is something that is core about our makeup as artists. And that makes us more similar than different. I really hope that we can use this opportunity and kind of this shutdown to really see ourselves as part of a tribe that is struggling to survive, who have this similar kind of psychological DNA that loves to sit in rooms and pretend things are not real, either as audience members or as participants on stage or, you know, in all the different ways that one can live and devote one's life to theater. One of the things that I think is really important, it's not just who gets to tell stories, it's what stories you get to tell when you have a platform. And that is something as an Arab American was very clear to me. Like I can tell stories up the wazoo about how hard it is to be in a misogynistic culture, whether that's Arab or American. But if I talk about why we go to war and maybe we should look at that, then I don't have a platform in the same way. So it's not just that we need people of color. It's we need to be able to get back to our like intellectualism, get back to our activism in in the best way of active thinkers, not active like yelling in the streets. And I kind of think the the legacy of McCarthyism, you know, it used to be, and in many cultures, that you're an artist and you're not put in these categories of political or non-political. And that kind of really is something that came out of McCarthyism, the idea that you are political if you engage in the hot button issues of your time, and that makes you dangerous. That didn't exist as a concept within, you know, maybe our grandparents' lifetime. So that is kind of a reaction to the terror that was inflicted on our community as artists during the McCarthyism era. And I think that terror kind of has bled down into this generation of artists. And the reaction to this moment is because, you know, it's very interesting. The first Asian American play on Broadway, Young Jean Lee, is called Straight White Men and it's about white people. One of the most important plays by a Native American is the Thanksgiving play, and it's about white people. So it's, it's not just about who gets to write the plays. It's what plays we're allowing ourselves to see. And, you know, I think it's very important. And I'm in residence at the Classical Theater of Harlem, who did my crazy tragic comedy, Fit for a Queen, which was about a female pharaoh who ruled in drag for 20 years. She ruled the superpower of the ancient world. And nobody knows her name. You know Cleopatra because she was a Shakespearean character, but nobody knows that the superpower of the ancient world was ran for 20 years by a woman in drag who said, call me Pharaoh. Classical Theater of Harlem was the only place that wanted to do a big, crazy play that talked about cross-dressing in the middle of the election. 
So I was touting around this crazy play for 20 years and I could get, you know, major off-Broadway productions of my family dramas, of things that kind of fit in the genre of what we think of as, you know, American classics like, you know, O'Neill and Miller. Now we are living in a time where so many of our writers are writing for Netflix and Hulu and all these wonderful platforms that did not exist when I got out of drama school. When I got out of drama school, the only show you wanted to write for was Sopranos because that was the only show that seemed to be interesting. It was embarrassing to say you wanted to work in TV. It meant that you failed, you know, like as an artist. It meant that the illusion that you were going to be Tennessee Williams and, you know, have a a great life in Hollywood, but still stay true to your artistic core was not, you know, the the dream. So we can't compete in the same way. Like we can't tell the same stories on stage if all our writers are doing those stories in much easier platforms. So we have to get more theatrical. We have to get wilder in our imagination. We have to be more of what theater is in order to evolve in this time because nobody's going to pay for the same writers to be writing the same stories right, you're exactly um, right. when we can access them from our phones and our computers. And I kept thinking, I'm left to my devices. We are all sitting here left to our devices and we're all writing, or at least I was, you know what I mean? Creating these things that like, I did this, pro- I co-curated this project called the Icons of the Harlem Renaissance, which is basically, there were there were a lot of queer artists in the Harlem Renaissance that nobody knows about. You know about Langston Hughes and, and, and people, but you don't really know what was going on socio-politically in Harlem at that time. So I started doing that. I did something called the Chronicles of Fortitude, where I interviewed people and I said, what's the hardest, hardest thing you've ever encountered? How did you get through it? And how can that help us with this cultural moment? Because I felt the the tools that I had, which are like gratitude journals, were not working in this time. Because to sit and be grateful for your family and your income at a time when all those things were being snatched from the gods by, by people around you felt crazy to me. It felt like what I needed to do was sit down and remember, okay, what did it feel like to be a Palestinian at the Yale School of Drama and knowing I was creating art for nobody in the audience who looked like me? What did that feel like? And how did I get through that? And how I got through it was, I have no control over how people perceive me. I can only make work that I think, and I hope I can aspire will have relevance when these issues that are defining our moment are no longer the defining moments of our time. And I grew up in a time, and I went to a little Catholic school, where we used to jump under the desks and put our heads like under because we thought the Russians were coming. And I used to have nightmares that Russians were coming to kill me as a child because this is what I was taught. It was some like throwback. And when 9-11 happened, I realized, oh, now kids are going to have nightmares about these crazy people who look like me. And in my relatively short lifetime, this shift took place. And it's been really interesting because one of the first things that Trump did is he did a Muslim ban. But because there's so much else stuff going on, you know, when I'm talking to theaters, they're like, well, you know, do you think these kinds of issues are still relevant? As if I don't have the recourse or the ability to be a political activist or to, you know, write op-ed pieces or be in that arena as if the reason I create theater is so that I can talk about, you know, a man named Trump and the bans that he wants to put on our, you know what I mean? And it's, 
it's hilarious to me because there's so many more interesting ways of being an activist than sitting down and writing something that you hope is a blueprint that anybody in any culture could translate and understand on a human level. I, I'm fascinated by, you talked about the McCarthyism and we've been talking to artists lately about all of these new platforms that they're creating and many artists and actors saying, you know what, we're, we're not going to work for you unless you, you show me these receipts for what you are donating to. We're not going to be a part of anything until you can show us that you are standing behind us and you are standing next to us with everything that we're doing. And it's so interesting. I was thinking last night because we were talking to the artists yesterday about it. I was thinking last night about how much history repeats itself. And it just keeps repeating itself over and over. And we're not, yes, we're talking about it and we're talking about, oh, how can we make this change? Oh, everybody just keeps saying every year, wow, history is repeating itself, repeating itself. But what are we doing to, to make this change? Yes. Uh, yes. So I'm, I, I'm, mm-hmm, no, please go ahead. Go ahead. I, I really feel that, you know, the reason I, I, I hearken to McCarthyism is I feel there is an anti-intellectualism and an anti-activist streak in, in the bulk of American theater. And to me, to not engage with the issues of your time, you know, separate it from calling it political, because I feel like political makes it sound bad. You know, like for me, when I was, when somebody called me a political artist, I wanted to stab myself in the eye because that to me read as, you know, I, I had early people come to roar and say, you know, your play, I knew it'd be interesting. I had a funder from a major thing say, I knew it would be politically interesting. I didn't know it would be artistically interesting. She said that to me, which I feel like maybe 70% of my audience came dutifully to a play about Arab Americans during the first Cold War. And, and it astounded me because, because it was so, that's a feeling we all have. We all have the feeling that we're going to see a play about a different culture. Meanwhile, we'll go see Chekhov because we have been taught that that's important. We'll go put ourselves in things that have nothing to do with us because we've been taught that that matters and you're not a literate human being if you don't know Chekhov. You can't be a part of American theater if you haven't read at least Chekhov. So these are all our perceptions, but the, the audacity to say it to a young artist to me realized, made me realize how much on the surface it is. But I think during the Gulf War, What happened on American stages was a plethora of plays. And these are my colleagues and I love them and I admire them more than just love them. I think they're wonderful work. Even my own work, the least politically salient works get produced of mine. And that's just the facts. But during the Vietnam War, if you had a bunch of plays that were showing you how terrible the Viet Cong was all over and how horrible they were to their citizens, that was not what was happening during the Vietnam War. They were saying, let's investigate these claims of we're going to save these people from themselves. But you had plays about how bad Saddam Hussein was and how terrible his people were. You had plays about how horrible... Afghan women were being treated, even though we're allies with Saudi Arabia. Do you know what I mean? Which makes no sense why you'd go to war in Afghanistan and be an ally with Saudi Arabia. But our intellectual, artistic heartbeat 
in American theater during that war was to sound the drumbeats of the Bush administration and what they were saying. Laura Bush did this thing that no other first lady did, which was do an address before the war. This has never been done in American history and said, the reason we're going is we care about Afghan women. And so you see things in Lincoln Center about Afghan women being killed because they're trying to have a boyfriend. And instead of poking holes in that narrative, we are using our intellectual and imaginative power to make it complicated why we're going into those places. And it's not the artist's fault because you hear a story about Afghan women. I want to write that story, you know, but (laughs) it's the idea that we should be renegades. We should be, you know, we should be the James Baldwin's of our time. We should be saying, you know, why is it so hard for gay people to be married? How can we live in a culture where that's hard? You know what I mean? That's ridiculous. Instead of being like, oh, there's Will and Grace on TV and everything's okay. We should be angry. It's not okay. Or or at least fiery. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Joy, I know you have something to say about this. So please go go ahead. I want to take it back for a second. Um, When you came on, you were talking about how we in the theater community, we're the outliers, so to speak. We're the weirdos. We're the thinkers. And that this is an opportunity for us to start to peel back and really get to the truth of what's happening for us as individuals and the truth of what's happening for us as a society. What do you think we can do? Because once we get together and we have those conversations, Mm -hmm. if it just stays within us and it stays within the current audience that we have, we're kind of preaching to the choir because the theater are those people who are forward thinkers or want to be or have a desire to be forward thinkers as well. How can we get the message out to those people who are anti-thinkers and they are just kind of going with the mainstream. How can we bring those people in so that we can use our voice as artists to create a shift in society and not just in our little choir? That's the, you know, that's the million dollar question. But <laughs> I, I just want to look at your premise because I'm not sure the theater goers who go to American theater really are used to being challenged like Lynn Nottage's plays that are really radical are not the ones you see in regional theaters. Mm -hmm. And so even within the body of a major artist's work, we're not seeing the stuff that is, it's much easier to do a play about black on black violence than a play like Hornockers that deals with the Black Panther movement. So I actually am not sure that we are preaching to the choir. When I was writing plays like Roar, I was the, you know, woman of color, it girl. I got all the little awards. I got all the little regionals. I got, you know, that thing. When I wanted to do something more interesting, I had to go to Europe for a decade. And I do think that is, like I said, a carryover of McCarthyism. Nobody wants to be dealing with the things that are really scary. And Middle Eastern politics are terrifying. I do think there is room, even within our bubble, to get wilder get more interesting because there's no reason to do theater if we're not going to be scaring ourselves, either politically, artistically. There's no reason in this culture to have our art form if we're not doing things we can't do in any other art form. I actually think you just answered the million dollar question. Oh, I did? Yeah, because if people take those risks and they do that kind of work, then it will attract those people that typically think that the theater is not for them because they're not interested in seeing the things that are making the current audience comfortable. So if we start taking those risks, those people who go, oh, they're doing something different that speaks to me and I actually see my story 
and I don't see the white savior coming in that appeals to people. And I think that if the theater starts to take those risks, then we will get a broader audience than what we currently have. I think you just answered it. Well, which is I amazing so. to and, me. And I'm sorry, Betty. Please, no, please. No, you, I would love to, for, for you to finish your thought about that. Oh, no, okay. Well, I have a lot of them, so, so I'm gonna give it that. That's okay, that's why you're here. <laughs> you know, I think it's an exciting time to be a theater artist. And I have such empathy. You know, I'll say it again. Probably white men have done more for my career, have like been the helping hand for me, just by the fact that most of them are, in, more of them are in power than people of color. But I do think it's really important that we look at funding structures. As somebody who benefited from the system of being the one person of color that everybody produces early in my career, I understand that that system isn't working. You know what I mean? I'm from San Francisco. San Francisco, until very recently with the change of leadership at the major institutions, was only either doing work that was going to New York or coming from New York. San Francisco is a major cultural center of the world, not just America. And the fact that we're doing derivative work and we don't have our own culture, what we've got to do is we've got to like try to scare ourselves, you know? And we have to also have empathy for people who are you know, it's hard to do theater. It's hard to make theater. It's hard to fundraise for theater. It's hard. So I have such empathy for these people who are in the middle of this movement, have devoted their lives two or three decades and being told to step down. But I also think what we need to do is work together. You know, Classical Theater of Harlem is a wonderful place and it partners with downtown theaters. And I yeah. think that more ways of, of empowering artists run places and making collaborations where it doesn't seem like logical choices is how to do it. But I think it comes down to funding because for me, the reason they were doing Roar or, you know, whoever was the it girl or boy of the person of color was because they had a mission statement that said that they had to do diverse works. Mm-hmm. And so if you go to a museum and they say, our mission is to do diverse works and there's one person of color, you would laugh and leave the museum. And that what was happening for my entire adult life as a theater artist. I don't think you have to change. If you want to do plays about pink elephants, that is fine. Just don't make your mission statement. We do diverse works, take right. money from places like Classical Theater of Harlem or My Yee, because also the cheapest production I had was Fit for a Queen. And it also got the top tier Broadway critic to come see it because he understood the importance of what, you know, a people of color theater was doing in New York putting a woman of color at center stage during the 2016 election. So that like the critics were ahead of the producing bodies because of, I think the idea of doing a big campy Egyptian play is not kind of our ethos. We want little family dramas in which most of the bad things that happen are done by other people of color to the people of color. So we can feel justified in, in doing our due diligence rather than being like, let's be fascinated. I mean, when you make theater, it has to be better than a good meal with a group of your best friends, because that's how much it costs. It costs that much. It costs that much in terms of life and time and money. So we're not, we shouldn't make this unless what we're doing is pushing our art form, pushing us as artists, and hopefully bringing the audiences who are giving their time in their life, that time they'll never get back, something that they can't get elsewhere. Which is exactly why, uh, I'm sorry to cut you up, but this is exactly why we had Ty Jones on a few weeks ago and he was talking about all of this. And I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, you have to follow through with your mission statement 
You have to, you know, put your money where your mouth is. It can't just be one little piece that that you choose and and the rest of the season is is something else. But while you were talking about Roar, which was a a very big hit for you, and I'm, I I love the way you talk about it and how you look back on it, I find it incredible that after you had that very big success with it, you had to go somewhere else. You had to go to another country to produce your other work because you were the it girl. You were the it girl mm-hmm. at that time, but they didn't want to touch any of your other pieces. Right. So I had to make a very clear choice. I either recycled Roar. I often would say if I did a play that was an honor killing play about a young Arab American girl whose father kills her because she's trying to date. Like if I did the most tongue in cheek, crazy Saturday Night Live version of Arab culture, I really feel that, that I would get the same kind of success and visibility and awards that that Roar garnered for me. And at a certain point, to me, Roar, I, I talk very deliberately about my career. To me, it's very important to analyze the environment in which I'm growing as an artist. And so to me, Roar was an experiment. I said, I'm, you know, Roar is one of my favorite plays in the universe is a streetcar named Desire. Because for me, it feels like an Arab play. A sister-in-law has a lot of sex, everybody thinks she's dirty, and it destroys her. So to me, that is that could exist in the Arab world exactly. But we don't see it as that way. We because it's southern, we go, okay, we can identify that. But if I make those characters, you know, Fatima and Khadija, then suddenly that's foreign and weird. So it's my version of what happens, you know, 15 years later after the baby grows up and the aunt shows up then. But it was really a deliberately thing to say, okay, American theater likes family dramas by people of color. Let me write this very deliberate thing in the model of my favorite American play. And and let's see if American theater will absorb and take this product and do what I think it will do with it. So, and it did. And so at a certain point I was like, you know, I have hopefully 50 years of writing in me. I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. I want to do wild, crazy, the Blacks, Janae kind of work. And I want to do campy, big Egyptian plays. And I want somebody to pay for it because that's what I want to do. So I made the deliberate choice not to do Roar Part 2, which is, you know, the honor killing play and kind of get absorbed in the American culture as the person who talks about her culture in the way that we are used to hearing and kind of makes us feel better about her. To me, it's much more interesting because I really do live in the nexus between the Arab and American world. I feel like I'm both as opposed to one or the other or neither. It's very interesting to talk about how it's different that the culture works on women. You know what I mean? The fact that I spend so much time trying to look pretty for podcasts and then going, oh, great, nobody has to see me, that I have a whole different makeup set for Mm -hmm. when I, you know what I mean? That that's lifetime, that men who roll up and do a podcast are reading and writing during that time. To me, it's much more interesting to talk about how we're on a spectrum of misogyny or homophobia. Let's see ourselves as a family because it's the easiest thing to do is go, oh my God, they kill their daughters. It's okay that we only get 80 cents on the dollar. So I felt like I couldn't do that anymore. And that's the other thing I really hope that more artists do. See how you you are in the world of theater. Analyze yourself as a body moving in a sociopolitical space. And I also think that is not rewarded. And, you know, it's kind of like that, who's the baseball player, one of... Trump's people said shut up and dribble when he talked about Colin Kaepernick. I feel like you're supposed to shut up and write plays. You're not supposed to talk about the industry. You're not supposed to talk about politics. You're not supposed to talk about how you benefit 
from playing within the system. It's taboo to discuss or think about who you are and where you are in your cultural moment. And I think it's so important for an artist to be like, I understand the things I'm doing and the things that I'm getting rewarded for. And I'm making choices based on that. And there's nothing wrong with that. And we're all cognizant of it. So let's talk about it. It's dangerous when people want to think <laughs> um, yes. to the way the structures currently are. And that's why they say just shut up and dribble because you can push forward my agenda. And when you start thinking, you're starting to, to knock away at those bricks that hold up my agenda. Back in July, you did a, an article where you talked about the debt owed to the Black artists, thinkers, and intellectuals. Can you talk about that uh, a little more? I, I, as a Black woman, when I read it, I was like, yes, funny talk, talk. <laughs> well, you know, I, and it's one of the things that makes me deeply emotional because, you know, I often say if I was a Jewish person, maybe I wouldn't be somebody like Tony Kushner who really looks at what's happening with humanity. Maybe I wouldn't be that way. If I was a black person, maybe I would be like, you know what, Arab girl who, you know what I mean? You need to find your own way. And that has never been my experience with the black community. It has always been, let us work together. Let us help you, which in terms of the black community, because they are the pioneers, because they have integrated, because they have given us the first black president, because they've done all these things, they have made it possible for so many other people while still bearing the brunt of the violence that is necessary to keep this artistic, you know, it is violent to me to only do work that is about black on black violence. Yes. from an artist and that is a violence to the, uh, an artist to say we will herald you if you do this kind of work mm -hmm. we will ignore or write terrible reviews or never talk about this other kind of work and so and so when people say to me I'm half Lebanese and I want you to put me in the play and you can't put a black person or a Latino when I have been so embraced by the black community and the Latino community for me that is like the opposite of what people of color should be doing, which is, which is following the model of the black community and being generous with each other, even though we have differing struggles and even though not all of us are bearing the same brunt in the same way. And I wouldn't think it was possible for a Palestinian person to exist without Lorraine Hansberry and August Wilson doing what they did in the middle of the culture. I also wouldn't, probably be here if I didn't have Margot Jefferson reviewing Roar, one of the only Black female critics in a major newspaper. So yeah. I feel, you know, and we can talk about criticism, that's a whole different thing, but it's, I don't know if I would be as generous as the Black community has been to me if I was a Black person, <laughs> you know, like, and there was mm -hmm. this Arab girl who was like, I have no friends, I have no allies, I'm alone in this, uh, you know, and, and and 9-11 happened. Can someone help me? You know what right. I mean? And like, wow. you know. Um, I want to remind our audience that um, you can ask a question. There's a question and answer button there. You can either ask your question live or Joy or myself can ask your question for you. Betty, I'm fascinated by your impulses to write. What is your process of, you know, I'm sure it could take hours for you to take, take us <laughs> through a, a whole process of writing a play, but... Right. Um, to me, I'm interested in, you know, 
the spark and then the writing. I'm sure we have a lot of aspiring playwrights out there and I think they would love to know where it comes from. Okay, well, I'm gonna give you the lofty version and then the hardcore version. Okay, you Um, do both. The lofty version is I, you know, I'm a super nerd and I just will sit and read. I'm as nerdy as they come. Do you know what I mean? Like when everybody was dating, I was sitting in my, (laughs) you know, in my twenties reading. Um, And that had ramifications on my personal life, but you know, like that I'm, so I think that the best thing you can do as an artist is just really, and do it alone. Go to museums alone. I went to so many shows alone in New York which I got used to doing because nobody wanted to see theater as much as me and all my friends were theater people. So like, you know, the only thing you can do is just absorb as much as you can. And the other thing I did is I always created deadlines for myself. I said, okay, I'm going to apply for the O'Neill, you know, when I was 22. And so at that, you know, come November, which I think it was November back in the day, I would have to have a draft and it would be a crappy draft. It would be a terrible draft, but I would get a draft of a new play. And so I would create these artificial deadlines for myself. Once those stopped working as much as I got further in my career, I would get my friends, buy them pizza and beer, get my out of work actors and say, will you come over and read this play for me? And what it did was it proofread it, you know, at the very least, (laughs) like I wasn't sending these like things that weren't proofread. And I had these wonderful actors and I had There's a lot of forms that I write in, but I devoted my life, went to graduate school, spent 20 years being a theater artist because I love people. So it's this weird thing of being completely a nerd who wants to isolate oneself and then be in the middle of this symphony of people trying to make a story come to life. So I think as absorb other people's work and also try to create a community. And the easiest thing for a playwright to do is go to their out of work actor friends and buy them pizza and beer and say, please come over and bring your laptop because I don't have money to print out 12 scripts and sit with me, (laughs) you know what I mean? And tell me I'm not a loser. That's all you want. You want him to sit with you, proofread Mm -hmm. and tell you you're not a loser. That's all you need. But I also think theater is, you know, if you write a novel, it lives forever. If you're on Netflix show, anybody can pick it up. But we're only alive a short time. And this is what I want to do with the time that I'm alive. So the idea that I'm going to create longevity with a novel you know what I mean? Or like, I'm going to, you know, live forever if I, the third writer from the left on, you know, whatever Netflix show that I love, which I do love, you know what I mean? Is great. But it's also when you get to a certain age, you just want to be doing the things you want to be doing and to recognize that we're ephemeral so that the, yes, the art that we create is ephemeral, but it, it lives the way we live. And, and it's, it's kind of trying to cheat death to think that you're going to, do you know what I mean, do more than that if you make, you know, a, a movie as opposed to what we make. So th- that's the short I love, I love, I love that. <laughs> I love that answer. And it's very helpful. Yeah. Joy, right. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, piggybacking on what you just said about we're here just for a short period of time. Um, yeah. You always explore the human condition and the hierarchies of it in all of your shows. So and you, I'm a mom as well. So you being a mom, what kind of legacy or the human condition that you dream of, of leaving this earth with that helps to create a better space for your child? Well, I have to just say something. I'm going to out myself. You know, I didn't put on Facebook that I was a mom. 
I left New York when I got pregnant and came to San Francisco, had birth here because I was so frightened that people would see me pregnant and not do my place, which is crazy, but makes sense. Mm. So now that I'm like, kind of, people are still doing my place. I said, okay, well now, you know, my kid is six years old, probably two thirds of the actors that I've worked with in New York don't know that I've had a child. And I think that's something because I felt like being a woman was so hard, but being a mom means that kind of, you're really not a white man. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you're biologically not, you don't look like Ibsen or Shakespeare or any of the people that we revere. So. The thing that I like to say is that the truly terrifying people in this world are people who think that they're good people and that there's good people and that there's bad people. We are all everything. And the more we're aware of it, the more we can control it, the more we can laugh at it, the more we can not kill each other. Whoever is in power acts a certain way. And most of my plays are about what people do when they're in power. And that's why I wanted to move out of the kind of family drama. I wanted to write about big themes. I wanted to write about, you know, kings and queens and crazy stuff. So what I try to teach my son is there aren't good and bad people. There are people, we are all have all those things and that's what connects us all. And we have to check those things that are not helpful and work on the things that are helpful. I always thought I'd tell my kid, don't ever bully anybody. Don't ever fight. But, you know, he's a gentle soul. And so I'm like, you know, somebody pushes you. Do you know what I mean? Like your first reaction as a mother is like beat the out of him. Do you know what I mean? And I said, wow, that's really interesting. Because I never would have thought before I had a child who I, I was sending off to the playground that I would <laughs> put him in karate. Like I lived in Miami for a minute and I put him in an all Spanish speaking Cuban little karate school where little four-year-olds were hitting each other with sticks. I was like, that's where my son needs to go. Cause if he's going to grow up in Miami, even for a minute, he's got to deal with it. And that was so opposite how I thought I would parent, which is go, you don't speak even Spanish and go fight with these kids who are yelling at each other in Spanish with, and hitting each other with sticks and full body armor at four. And, I'm going to have to and, look into that classroom myself. <laughs> I might be a little old, you know, um, Betty, can you repeat that line that you said about good people? Oh, wow. That's going to be rough. It, it was, it was along the lines of, you know, bad people charading as good people. Right. The, I'll try it a couple of ways, but the, yeah. there's, there's no such thing as good or bad people. We are all everything. And the truly, truly terrifying people are the people who think that they're good that's and it. that there's bad people who are good. Thank okay. you. That, no that, <laughs> I love the way you put that. I never, I mean, it seems so simple, but it, it really speaks to, to really what's going on in this country right now. And uh, thank you for saying that. Joy, right. go ahead. I'm sorry. We have a question from the audience. What young up and coming writers and artists do you currently admire? Myself. No, just kidding. <laughs> Very <laughs> honest answer. Good. I love it. There's good people. In it. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> um, this is what I say. I teach a lot too. And I brought a lot of places to come teach seminars. And this is something I say, and I, it's not a direct answer to the question. You know what I mean? Like I'm a little bit older and you know, I have been a mom the last five years, so I haven't seen a lot of stuff, really, honestly, that has happened in the last five years as much as I would like to be able to answer that question coherently. But what I will say is there is always somebody in every single theater class that I have ever taught at any college who comes up with an idea that I wish I could steal. 
It is such a good idea. And they don't have the stamina to finish it. And so that is something that I take every time. So I'm, you know, a writer and I've won a few awards and I've been to a few fancy schools. And every place I go, I say there are people with ideas everywhere. It's just the people who want it bad enough who are really actually working in this industry. But, you know, I like Larissa Fasthorse's work. I like Rajiv Joseph's work. I like Lynn Nottage's work a lot. And I know most of the artists who are my age working in theater. And I feel like we're having a cultural conversation with each other. And I know there are works that aren't being produced. And I know why, generally, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Which is like, I can get this play produced at every regional theater. I can't yeah. get anyone to touch this play. So that's the thing that I would say about in terms of who I admire, I admire everyone who actually gets the work done are the people who are hungry and crazy and care so much about this ephemeral experience that we're trying to create as ephemeral beings on this planet. And also the, the people that have the stamina, the people that are willing to <sighs> put in the work and just, and just keep going. I mean, you know, <sighs> just keep pushing, keep writing, and just keeping your stuff out there. We have another audience question, which kind of piggybacks on, on Joy's last question from the audience is, what kind of theater excites you now? I'm really excited by theater that can only be done in theater. I, I like what I was saying about how when I was coming out, there was only the Sopranos. There was none of this great playwriting happening, you know, on on our streaming devices. Right. So the things that are really exciting to me, like I'm working on a sequel to Twelfth Night called Malvolio at the Classical Theater of Harlem. And you know what I mean? And that's the opposite of Roar, which is a family drama that anyone can relate to. No, you got to really be a theater nerd who likes Twelfth Night or is interested enough to kind of come see that show. Do you know what I mean? Like, and I, I'm interested in theater that engages with our art form is more of what it is which is these nerds who do this weird thing, who are obsessed with this, these weird, you know what I mean, texts. So that's, you know, everybody's doing solo shows on Zoom and I wanna do big, you know, Shakespearean sequels. So I'm interested in Janae, you know, I'm interested in big plays like the Blacks that are messy and crazy and fiery. Cause I feel like what you miss when you go to theater is people who are really passionate about something and willing to be bombastic and be like, I'm a bombastic person. Here I am. You know, like you can think I'm crazy, but at least I'm saying something that you can't get elsewhere. So I think that I'm interested in immersive theater. The last show I did in New York was set in an Arab coffee house. The oral tradition was that men storytellers would go into Arab coffee houses and tell stories from the Arabian Nights, which is kind of crazy because the Arabian Nights has a female narrator who is the ultimate storyteller, but it was all male spaces who were doing this. So I crafted kind of a replica of an of an Arab coffee house and did a prequel to Camus the Stranger in which one of three brothers is going to be um, assassinated. And it's from the mother's perspective. Because the French Algiers was this amalgam of Arab and French culture, I created theater that used both performative traditions. So I'm interested in immersive theater. That kind of story can only happen. You can only sit and drink coffee in an Arab coffee house if you go somewhere. You can't turn on your device and have that experience. I was reading about Malvolio last <laughs> night. And for <laughs> me, it's my favorite Shakespearean character. And I had the opportunity to play it in grad school. So really? I mean, for me, yeah. I mean, for me, he's the unsung hero of, and I feel very, you know, misunderstood. 
So, I mean, for me, Malvolio is it when it comes to Shakespeare. So I can't wait to see what, what you do with that. And I'm so excited to see Thank all you. your work That's in your nice next work. Joy, I think you have another question uh, from the audience. This one came in and it says, is there something you'd like to write about that you haven't been able to find a place for? My family has been defined by the Palestinian-Israeli crisis. And I've written a ton load about it. And it always scares me. It's something that I have been freed from. Now I'm writing things like Malvolio and ancient Egyptian queens who are cross-dressers and stuff like that. I would like to get back to that story and tribalism and what it means and how we can create different kinds of tribes and how trusting is part of healing, as part of growing. I think in 50 years, the Middle East is going to be like the EU. There's going to be one currency. Everybody's going to get along. Everybody's going to live wherever the hell they want. So I, I don't have this kind of rage that I have to express the Palestinian experience. But it's a very interesting, if you're not in the middle of it, kind of way of seeing how nationalism, tribalism, trauma replicates itself. So I'm interested, again, in doing that kind of work. But I'm also kind of tired out by the rage it induces in people who want to peg me or my plays as um, didactic. Mm. Um, so I would like to come back to the, the earlier themes with more patience and maturity and better chops. Because I think that we, we do have two or three stories in us. And, you know, all of us do, Shakespeare, all of us, we're all dealing with whatever is our personal obsessions. And I think the Palestinian-Israeli crisis or conflict is something that is, for me, a model for how we all can get past these ideas of tribes we inherit and work towards a world where we choose our tribes. Yeah, I mean, you can choose your, your own tribes. I mean, for me, being a, a Jewish man from New York, you know, you grow up with you know, with what you see and what and what they tell you. And for me, I agree with you completely. I, I look forward to seeing what what your play about family is going to bring and to um to show us. I appreciate your voice in the theater so much. I find your you. um, writing beautiful and your point of view and your, you know, not being a cross-dressing, you know, black man playing, you know, a queen, you know, for me, I mean, that's, that's what authors and writers, you know, stepping outside themselves to write about, to write about things like that. And we need to see more of that within our country and within our small sort of community here in the New York theater, theater scene and for institutions not to be so freaking scared of, of what that's going to bring. And I'd also like to, you know, after the Great Depression, there was just comedies. I would like to write a really good comedy about the Palestinian-Israeli crisis. I would like to laugh at how crazy it is, especially because everywhere I go, everyone thinks I'm Jewish. So it gets me in all these weird, crazy situations. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, my name kind of looks like Shamir. Do you know what I mean? Like it's yeah, just, yeah, yeah, so, I could, yes. So I would like to deal with it through a comedic lens because I think it's the only way we can handle do you know what I mean? The big themes. And that's the other thing. I'm very funny. My plays are very funny, yes, but I'm are. seen as a serious artist of color. And that is also, I think, interesting because people are like, you're, you're actually like funny. I think comedy is a way through this period. And I think it's going to be more important as we start to, you know, this period of being isolated 
Cause it's kind of funny. We're all addicted to our phones and now all we have is our phones. <laughs> you know I mean, like, it's like if, if we were characters in a novel, this is when our life gets interesting. Do you know what I mean? like what happens to these people? You wanted it. Here you go. <laughs> like, um, yeah. And the, for me, what, what, and I was talking to joy cause we're all part of this writing group from our, our grad school. And nice. we were talking about what's, I'm so interested to see what's going to come out of the writers and artists now that people have been isolated and only have their phones and the newspaper and, and the <laughs> CNN. And I mean, what, what kind of art is going to be created within these months that we're going to see God hope a year from now. So, and I, I have a hunch it's going to be funny, whatever it is. Do you know I what hope because so. It's, it's we need, so it. terrible we need, we need the humor. We need the laugh. <laughs> Because hey, that, we that's do. what we need. Yeah. <laughs> we Even do. if a person just simply transcribed every single day and 50 years from now read it, it would be a comedy. It, this is the craziest time ever. You can't, it really feels like for me, we have a choice to either go through this in pain or go through this and go, okay, God, I see you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I see you. And I'm going to I'm going to maneuver through this because otherwise it can be paralyzing. So what do you do to kind of like keep yourself you have a child at home. We're all living in the same world right now. How do you keep yourself from just going, "Oh, let me just How do I how do you get out of the bed?" <laughs> well, what's hilarious to me is and it's kind of the reason why I didn't like out myself as a mom on my Facebook page. And you know what I mean? Like, cause I still see myself as a New York single artist, like running around going off Broadway, you know what I mean? So it's funny. Cause I'm like, that's not my experience right now. But the other thing is it takes so long for a playwright to from conception to production. It takes about, I mean, if you're lucky, two years from the minute you start writing a play, usually three to four. So in terms of my artistic development, this is normal to me. You know, I mean, I'm sitting alone. You know what I mean? Like I, I moved back to San Francisco primarily because my parents are here and I wanted help with my kid during this time. So like we're, I have three generations, you know what I mean? We just finally got our own space, but we're in one house driving each other crazy. I was like, this is never going to happen again. We're never going to have three generations sitting together, getting through time. This is going to be, this is going to imprint, not just my child, but me. And that's the other thing I want to convey. This is not time we're getting back. No one's going to go reset. Okay. You have your, your 29th year again. Do you know what I mean? Like, so we've got to do what we can. But the one thing that I have found heartening is, you know, being an artist, particularly a playwright, because what happens to a playwright is like, you have a family and sometimes they, impersonate your family members and they want to know everything about you and they want to have dinner with you every night and they want to hang out with you because that's research for those actors or that dramaturg and then they all go away and do their next job and you're like right. hey you want to have coffee and they're mm -hmm. like no i'm in seattle <laughs> you know what i mean like so all my actor friends are now calling me and want to hang out on the phone or on you know quarantine cocktails so i feel like it's actually been we need to say hey we're not getting this time back how can we connect with people in different ways? So all my active friends are calling me up and catching up with me in ways we never had time to do. And from that is coming ideas because it is so stupid. But if I see an actor on my stupid Facebook page, which I hate that I like so much, 
you know, because now it's <laughs> I, I want to be on TikTok. I think I'm 12. You know what I mean? I will remember to call them in for an audition. And it's not by any malice on my part that I've forgotten them. It's just that I've seen them. Oh, it's your birthday. Do you know what I mean? Like what? I have this part for you. Mm -hmm. And so when people are reaching out to me and I'm actively writing plays, they are in my consciousness now. So their voices are in my consciousness. They're sure as hell going to get a great audition. And you know what I mean? I'm going to fight for them because that's what playwrights do. They fight producers who want different people in their plays that they've than, than the people who've developed them with them for years right and i think we have to say we're not getting this time back who can we contact whose lives can we touch how can we be alive in these times because we're not getting this time back <laughs> and with that said um joy make sure you friend betty on yeah on facebook joy i, I was just thinking basically Go on. Um, go on, go on, go ahead, friend, friend, friend. Um, with that said, Betty, um, I want to thank you so much for this hour. It has been enlightening. I mean, it is, uh, I knew the, for me, I, the expectation was going to be high and you exceeded it. I, I, oh, I just find you, you um, your voice refreshing and lovely and your point of view on everything. So with that said, I, I want to say thank you to our audience. Thank you so much, my beautiful co-host. And of course, um, thank you, Betty, Shamia. We look forward to seeing what's gonna come out of your San Francisco home in this pandemic and see what art you are gonna create. So I can't wait to see what's next. So thank you so much. Thank you thank to our you. audience. We'll see you really soon. Thank you. Thank you. And that's our show. Next week, the incredible Daphne Rubin Vega and I will interview Drama Desk Award winner Andrea Burns. We will discuss her role as the saucy hairdresser in Lynn Manuel Miranda's Tony Award winning musical In the Heights. Since Daphne recreated the role of Daniela in the upcoming film, I bet these two powerhouse women will have a lot to talk about. That interview will air on November 27th. Then Joy and I will have the great privilege to speak with Katori Hall the Olivier award-winning playwright and showrunner of Pea Valley. We will talk about that as well as her experiences writing and getting to know the legendary Tina Turner. That will air on December 4th. For more information on these guests and how to attend one of our future recordings next year from the comfort of your own home, please visit our website, live at thelortel.com. This podcast is brought to you by the Lucille Lortel Theatre. Live at the Lortel is produced by George Forbes, executive producer, yours truly, associate producer, Jeffrey Schubart. Press is provided by Sin Gogolak, GoGo Public Relations. And our social media is managed by Mia Radia. Special thanks to Nancy Hurwitz, Alana Canty-Samuel, and Maura Levines. Live at the Lortel is recorded online by Brian Falk, Abacus Entertainment. While theaters are closed, we hope you will consider donating to the COVID-19 Emergency Relief Fund at ActorsFund.org or your favorite theater company. Thank you so much for listening. 